Now, can we read together in the Roman letter and chapter 12? Roman letter and chapter 12. Verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service or uh, your spiritually intelligent worship. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace that was given me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought but so to think as to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to each man a measure of faith. For even as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and severally members one of another. And having gifts, differing according to the grace that was given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, let us give ourselves to our ministry, or he that teacheth to his teaching, or he that exhorteth to his exhorting, he that giveth let him do it with liberality. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. In love of the brethren, be tenderly affectioned one to another. In honor, preferring one another. In diligence, not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, communicating to the necessities of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them that persecute you, Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Set not your mind on high things, but, but condescend to things that are lowly. Be not wise in your own conceits. Render to no man evil for evil. Take thought things honorable in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as in you lieth, be at peace with all men. 
Avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place unto the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. But if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. A number of um, folks have asked me questions related to the phrase that we've used um, quite a lot recently, carrying holy things upon our shoulders. Um, I think this matter came up some time ago when the Lord spoke to us about being those who could bear on their shoulders the things concerning himself. And since then, reference has been made in prayer um, and in other ways to this matter of bearing on our shoulders the things of God or the holy things. And I think in all, about four folks have approached me and asked me, what on earth does this really mean? What do we mean? What does the scripture mean? Uh, in what way is this a picture um, uh, of something that can be of real help to us today? Carrying holy things upon our shoulders. Now, very simply, just first as an introduction, you will remember that um, this all goes back to the book of Numbers and Levitical service. The tribe of Levi, who were separated from the other tribes to bear the things to care for, uh, to take responsibility for everything to do with the work of God and to bear on their shoulders, uh, in literally, <laughs> not just spiritually, but literally, the things concerning the house of God. So that whenever the pillar of cloud and fire moved, then the priests and the Levites um, dismantled the tabernacle, and it was all done in a certain order that was given to them, packed it all up, uh, in the way that they were told to pack it all up. They took all the vessels, the holy vessels, from the big things like the altar of incense, golden altar of incense, the lampstand all of gold, the table of the showbread table, and so on, these things. Uh, these were also wrapped up. If you read, you'll read it all in between Numbers 1 and 6 or 7, this first uh, chapters and numbers. And then uh, uh, they were told in what order they were to march and so on and so forth. There were three main families of the Levites. I just understand this, that Aaron, of course, Moses and Aaron were from the of the tribe of Levi. The actual priesthood um, was the family of Aaron, but the Levites... There were three groups, um, Gershom, Merari, and Kohath. So they came to be known as the Gershonites, 
the Merarites and the Kohathites. Now, they were the only people who were allowed to bear the things of God upon their shoulders. No one else was allowed to touch any of the holy things. They were considered to be so holy. None of the children of Israel were allowed to touch even the tent of meeting. Only the priests and the Levites were allowed to uh, do this. So serious was this matter that many, many years later, when the ark of God had been um, taken away by the Philistines in a battle that Israel lost, and when after devastation throughout the country of the Philistines, they allowed uh, the ark to go back, drawn by oxen that had never known a yoke before, on a cart. You remember the story. Uh, it came to rest in a certain village or town. And there, finally, David decided to bring it up to Jerusalem. And uh, because the Philistines, the world, did it a certain way, David naturally thought that's the way they should do it. And so they put the ark on a new um, wagon, and they got certain men to draw it. And you know that as it was going up to uh, Jerusalem, it, um, it fell in a rut, one of the wheels, and Uzzah, rushed forward to touch the ark and to push it back into its place to save it from falling, and he was struck dead immediately. So horrifying was this judgment of God that David immediately halted the whole procession, and the ark was left at um, Kiryat Jarim, uh, whilst David and others sought the Lord as to why the Lord should be displeased about the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem. Because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the presence of God. It was, as it were, the visible expression of the um, presence of God. And uh, naturally, David was completely nonplussed. He was confused, bewildered as to why God should, should act in so... Uh, seemingly uh, savage away, furious away, um, over something that seemed so reasonable. It was when they were seeking the law that someone found in uh, the law, in um, Numbers, that there were only special people that were allowed to bear these things. And that furthermore, they had to bear them on their shoulders. Now, once David was a man, a spiritual man. Now, let's get this quite clear. It's only a, 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 a digression in one sense, but it may be helpful to many people. Spiritual people do make mistakes. You never judge a person uh, by the mistakes they have made. You judge them by the way they react to their mistakes. Now, do get that absolutely clear.
very, very important. Of course, God would keep us from mistakes if he, if he could. God doesn't want us to make mistakes. But the fact of the matter is that many people make mistakes. And we have the whole record of the Bible, including the New Testament, many mistakes that have been made by godly people and spiritual people and people who knew the Lord and loved the Lord. But their spirituality is not judged by the mistake, but the way they react to the mistake and what they do about it and whether they learn through it. Now, David's spirituality was simply this, that the moment someone put their finger on what was wrong, he reacted immediately. That's always the test of spirituality. Not the making of a mistake, but the... Uh, as to whether the moment someone puts their finger on, that's it, something in you says, yes, that's it. It's, of course, a question of how much there is of the Lord in us. Now, David was a spiritual man. He knew the law. And the moment someone found in the law this business about uh, bearing things on the shoulders and uh, Levites, he said, that's it. That's it. Very well, he said. Now then, quick, get going. See that we get the Levites sanctified and ready, and we'll go up to Kiryat Jarim, and we will take from there the Ark of the Lord. And of course, you know the story. They went up this time, and they took up the Ark, and heaven smiled upon them. And there was such a sense of freedom and such a sense of release that David danced before the Lord when finally got to Jerusalem and upset some people. There was such a, such a, such a, just an inward release because they just knew there was an open heaven. It was as if heaven smiled upon the whole. Now, this, of course, has, means that this whole matter of carrying holy things upon our shoulders is a very serious matter. It's not something to be um, just uh, 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 relegated to history. Ananias and Sapphira touched the ark of the Lord and died. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, for this cause, speaking of saints, for this cause, some have, um, are sick, some are weak, and some have died. Because they had not discerned the body. And that doesn't just mean eating bread and wine. It's because they hadn't discerned the unity or the oneness of Christ and acted in contradiction against it. In the same way, you get the Apostle Paul speaking of another. Uh, in, by the way, in connection with this, the Apostle Paul says they are judged, that they may not be judged with the world. In other words, it's the grace of God that judge. And this is not at all popular today. It's kind of thing. People say, oh, I, I don't believe. But of course the fact is, the 20th century hasn't changed God. God's standards are exactly the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, then you remember a case where uh, he, uh, the <coughs> Apostle Paul speaks of a certain brother and says, you know, I've delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. Mysterious brother. And then you get the Apostle John in 1 John 5 speaking of a sin that is a sin unto death. Not meaning spiritual death at all, but physical death. 
And he says, I do not say that you should pray for such a person. But if you see someone who is sinning not a sin unto death, pray for them. And know this, that he that converts a sinner from his way covers a multitude of sins. So this whole matter is quite serious. Don't think for a single moment that carrying holy things on the shoulder is something, as we've already said, which can be relegated to the Old, Te Old Testament. Not at all. It's something that is quite serious. And yet, on the other hand, we get other things that we cannot always quite, um, uh, at a first glance, uh, sort of relate. In other words, you get a person like, Peter, who did some dreadful things in his time and never died under the hand of the Lord. You've got a man like David, going back to the Old Testament, who sinned grievously and yet did not die under the hand of the Lord. This is a matter of touching holy things. Now, David may have done some very terrible things, but he had one thing that we can say absolutely for him. He had a regard for holy things. Now this is true because if you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you will immediately see just how this adds up. <coughs> so it's quite solemn. What do we mean by carrying holy things upon our shoulders. Well now, very simply, I'm just going to, this isn't a major study, it could be, and I, all I'm uh, seeking to do is to underline a few things about these, this carrying of holy things. First of all, it means that such people are absolutely committed to the Lord. Those that carry holy things on their shoulders, responsible. It means in spiritual terms, they are absolutely committed to the Lord. Look at Numbers, chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any portion among them. I am thy portion, and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. So this means that whereas everyone else of the children of God could have his own little plot, his own vine, and his own olive tree, um, Levi had no such inheritance. They had nothing that they could actually say, that's mine by right. The Lord was their portion and their inheritance. You've got it again in verse 23. But the Levites, shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear the iniquity, their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. 
In other words, their portion was the Lord in a peculiar and particular measure. Now that's what it means to carry holy things on your shoulders. It's as if God says to his people, look here, you can have your inheritance, you can have your own vine, you can have your own olive tree, you can sit under it and be joyful, you can enjoy yourself. But if you're going to be a spiritual Levite, someone who carries the things of God, I want to bring you onto another level altogether, not what you get, but what I get. Not your enjoyment, but my enjoyment. Not your fulfillment, but my fulfillment. That's what it means to carry holy things. Now, of course, I think you can see straight away that if there's no one to bear the holy things, what do we do? If there is absolutely no one who can bear these things when the pillar of cloud and fire goes forward, what are we going to do? The Lord expressly says, as we shall see when we come to another point, that not one of the children of Israel must touch this or he will die. Because it represents something absolutely holy before God. Therefore, if the Lord's purpose for the whole nation is to be fulfilled, if the Lord's purpose for the nations are going to be fulfilled through this nation. Everything depends upon these Levites. If they carry the things on their shoulder, then God's purpose for the nation can be fulfilled. God's forward move, his advance can be made. And his purpose for the nations around that nation and through that nation can be fulfilled. Do you understand that? In other words, it's exactly and precisely the same today. We talk about advance, we talk about moving forward, we talk about outreach. But you see, obviously the burden on God's heart is where are the people who can bear the holy things on their shoulders? Otherwise there will be blessing on all sides and it cannot be contained. It cannot be conserved. The values of it will be lost. But every fowl of the air will come in and settle in the branches, build its nests, and so on. And the last state will be worse than the first. And how true this has been. You look back, it seems to me, and this would be a study all on its own and a very fascinating study, that every movement of the Holy Spirit in church history, can the length of its value on earth can probably be judged by the Levitical service at its heart. In other words, every move of the Spirit of God, the duration of its values, is probably can, be, can probably be gauged, when one day we get to heaven, by the number of people at the heart of it who bore everything on their shoulders. And where there were few, there was the blessing and the movement and mighty acts and much else, but it fizzled out and became something earthbound within a generation. Well, there's a tremendous amount there that I, I, I'm sure that you can follow through um, if you uh, to think it out before God and with the Lord by the Spirit. Uh, it means that these people are absolutely committed to the Lord. It's as if the Lord saying, now look, I want to get you into a different relationship with me. I shall take you a difficult way. 
because you're going to bear things on your shoulder. Now, I cannot bless the whole nation. It's as simple as this. The rest can't sit under their olive tree and their vine and enjoy the good earth and the heavens and everything else unless I have some people who've got no olive tree and no vine to sit under. It's the very principle the Apostle Paul enumerates in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, death in us, life in them. Very thing. The Lord was their inheritance. But now let's look at it another way. Don't let us think that these Levites were the most miserable of all people. They had no olive tree. They had no vine. But they had a tremendous amount else. The Lord said, of all the offerings that come into the temple, you're going to have it. You'll feed on the fat of the land. You'll... The Lord didn't sort of say, now then, you are to be sort of thin, lean, sort of yellow-looking folks. Pharaoh's lean kind. But rather, he said, you're going to enjoy it. Once you've taken this step forward in faith, once you really are committed to me and I'm your inheritance, I'm no man's debtor. I'll see to it that you have a fullness that no one else in Israel had. This was the glory of Levitical service, of course. They saw things that no one else saw. Why, even when things had fallen into decay, I've often thought it was the Levite. Some dear Levite there polishing up the, the gold or sort of dusting some hanging or something else in the temple on that day when the Lord died. And suddenly there was a sound like wind. Some amazing sound tear, turning round. He saw the veil hanging open. And for the first time, a Levite saw into the holiest place of all. It was a Levite, great privilege. Many other things happened with Levites and the priests because they were inside the tent of meeting. They saw all kinds of things that went on, which could only be transmitted by mouth uh, to those outside. Many things. However, I just mention it. The fact that the Lord is their inheritance doesn't mean that they don't get anything. It means that they get more. Do you really believe that the Lord is so mean, so narrow-minded, that those who've given up everything will get nothing? Not, not our Lord. Then I think that this question of being absolutely committed to the Lord is a question of priorities. Now, the, the, with the Levites and the priests and the Levites, it was a question of priorities. What comes first, in other words? Our whole life can be judged by what comes first. Self, or work, or home. Many of these things may be quite legitimate in certain spheres, but for the Levite, it was the Lord first, the house of God, and then everything followed. Priorities. And when God speaks to us of bearing on our shoulders the holy things, he is speaking of priorities to get us to a place where we have the right Priorities. Now that in a general and a local. 
sphere. We know what comes first. I often feel that this would solve so many of our problems as to understanding what the will of the Lord is if we had our priorities right. Certain things get quite clear when we have our priorities um, clear. Then again, I would also just mention in connection with this that it means they're absolutely committed to the Lord, that if all Israel was to watch for the pillar of cloud and fire, I think you all know that everyone had to keep their eye on the pillar of cloud and fire. And when order was given for encampment, in other words, the pillar of cloud and fire had stopped, then first the house of God, the, the tabernacle was set up, and the pillar of cloud and fire was over it. And then all the tribes were in position right round it on all sides, north, east, south, west. And then every family was in a position, and every tent had its flap towards the house of God, so that they could see through the open flap, if necessary, that the pillar of cloud was moving station. But you got it? So at the moment the pillar of cloud started moving, you could hear a little hubbub and the missus could sort of open the flap and say, oh, the pillar of cloud's moving. So then everyone, all hands to the work, tent down, everything packed up, everything put away, ready for the move. Everyone then had to be in a position where they could see instantly whether the cloud, pillar of cloud and fire was moving. If that was so for the whole of Israel, how much more for the Levites? Because they had to steal a march on everyone else. They not only had their own tents to pack up, but they had the whole of the house of God, the tabernacle, to dismantle and put together, uh, uh, you know, in all the various order uh, that it had to be done. Priorities. Not only priorities, but in a sense, uh, a kind of order, if you like, our life centered uh, in the presence of the Lord. And then I just mentioned in connection with this, of course, you know, I'm sure we've sung that hymn, Who is on the Lord's Side. Uh, Levi was chosen because of that fearful act in which they were involved in Exodus chapter 32. You will remember that it was when the children of God had made a golden calf and were dancing around it and worshipping it and singing, as it were, um, praise to it, um, <clears throat> that Moses, when he saw it, stood at the entrance to the gates of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And only the tribe of Levi separated themselves. But the family of Levi separated themselves and took their position with Moses and Aaron. And then the Lord said to them, Take every one of you his sword and go through the camp and slay every man, his brother, his kith and kin, have no mercy whatsoever. In other words, Levi was absolutely committed to the Lord beyond all the normal relationships. Normal relationships, whatever they are or were, um, 
were governed by this relationship to the Lord. And of course, that's why the Lord chose Levi. Now, that simply means that the Lord's words, if you love father and mother more than me, take on a new meaning. It's not that we're not to love our parents. Of course not. When he said in even stronger terms about hating your own kith and kin, he didn't mean that we should actually hate them. But what he meant was this. What about priority? Who comes first? That's the point. Now, for, for, the, for Levitical service, the Lord must come first. And this is the hardest thing of all, to take the sword to our own kith and kin, to some of the nearest and dearest ties that we might have. Anyway, that's what it means. Carrying things upon our shoulders. When the Lord's word comes, it comes. I think of so many who have gone forth like Eileen. Lodge. I don't know, I can't understand some Christians when they despise missionary work. Despise missionary work. As if they're people going on some global tour. World globe-trotting, some world I always think it's right to sit down and think of oneself first. There may be a certain amount of glamour connected with going overseas, but once the glamour's finished with, and you face the hard facts of leaving your dearest and nearest, and when you go out without any security, to be absolutely alone, among people perhaps of another culture and another language, without all the usual ramifications that surround us, that's Leviticus. It means that someone's taken the sword to the nearest and dearest times because of priorities. The Lord's coming first. Well, I mentioned that. Then secondly, if it means that they are absolutely committed to the Lord, then I think secondly, um, carrying holy things upon our shoulders means that such carry a burden for the Lord's sake and for his people's sake. Now, if you turn to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1, 15. Verse 50 and 51. But appoint thou the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all the furniture thereof and over all that belongeth to it. They shall bear the tabernacle and all the furniture thereof and they shall minister unto it and shall encamp round about the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle setteth forth, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Now you see straight away here that they had to bear the burden of the Lord's work. Now, to be a child of God did not mean that you had to bear the actual burden on your shoulders. You could still be a son of Abraham. You could still be one of God's covenant people and not have the weight of holy things on your shoulders, but not a Levite. The priest and the Levite actually carried on his shoulder the literal weight of the things of God. 
And not only the literal weight on his shoulders, but he was responsible for the care, for the care of those things. The preservation of them. The upkeep of them. And much else. The burden had to be carried. And the burden had to be carried by them. They had, of course, their own home, in the sense that they may not have had an inheritance, actual land, but they did have somewhere to live. And therefore, every time the tent moved, they not own, every time the pillar of cloud and fire moved, they had to quickly do much more than the rest of the children of God. The rest of the children of God had only to gather the children together. Um, uh, sort of get everything packed up in order, take down the tent, put it all away. If they had flocks or other things, see that they were all together, and get just be ready, waiting for the word to go forward. But the Levites, they had to not only quickly just take down their own things, but then they had to go in and do all these other things as well. There was no getting out of it. They carried these things on their shoulders. No machines. No wagons with wheels. No carts, however much they could have been consecrated. They had to carry it on their shoulders. Now you know we all love machines. I mean, even today it's true. And now that we live in an age of machines, we love machines because it cuts down so much of the sweat in a job. We've got the tools to do it, and we can do it quickly. But not for the Levite. I mean, you could have thought, you might have been, just put yourself in some of their position. You could have thought, oh, this is old-fashioned. This isn't the Lord at all. This is just old Moses. It's not the Lord. The Lord's not like that anyway. I mean, what can I ask you? Can I simply ask you, why not put these things on wheels? What's so bad about putting things on wheels? Are wheels of the devil? If we make a, 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 a kind of cart that's beautifully made and sprinkle it with the blood of some lamb or bullock, Surely it's sanctified. I think that Moses likes us having to do things the difficult way. He's got a bad and wrong conception about God. His idea is that God likes everything to be long-winded, difficult, and roundabout. But surely, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a question of being spiritual or not spiritual. Surely it's a question, if you put it like this, it, it's a question of either being contemporary or old-fashioned. I mean, Moses is old-fashioned. That's all. Now, don't think that that's all just pure speculation. Because there was an awful lot of them. Even amongst the Levites. They would always grumble. It's one of the characteristics of God's people in the Old Testament and under the New that we grumble. Oh, have a go. And you see, it's, none of us really like to blame God, do we? 
I mean, that would really be outright rebellion. And we know that's wrong. So we blame one another, or this or that, and my word, we've all got our scapegoats, our whipping boys, for everything that goes wrong. And so we, can, we would be just the same if we were there. We would have said, oh, it's so silly. With a temperature of 110 degrees today, and in the desert, and not a shadow, and he expects us to carry that wretched lot on our shoulders. When we could so easily have put it on a cart, and with the most, in the most dignified and spiritual manner, not race it along, but simply draw it in a leisurely manner through the desert, it would have been so much easier. But God had his wisdom, because the desert has many hidden rocks. And that's exactly what happened with the ark when it was on the cart. But on shoulders, it's much safer. For men, it's much, much safer. So, you can't get out of it. We all want machines. We want shortcuts. We want to be able to do things swiftly, easily, to get out of the labor and the sweat and the toil. But Carrying holy things means that you've got to bear these things on your shoulders and you've got to face up to that very simple fact that that's what, has, what it means. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we find that somehow this question of carrying the burden is everywhere. Do you carry a burden? Oh, I'm not, I don't mean just a burden for yourself. But have you ever honestly had a true burden for others, for the work of God, for the people of God? Now, this is what it means if we turn to one or two uh, references. Take Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. For God is my witness. How I long after you all in the tender mercies of Christ Jesus. And this I pray. And then we t we're told what he, pray what he prays. He bore a burden. The, he was a spiritual Levite. This man. He wasn't just a professional minister. He wasn't just someone who had some wonderful knowledge of divine mystery. But he was a man who bore on his shoulder the things of God so that he could say, I long after you all. This letter's coming out of a burden. It's not that I'm going to write a wonderful letter which is going to be inspired and it's going to become scripture and people will study it forever after. He had no idea. The Apostle Paul was a quite spontaneous man. He had a burden. He walked with God. He knew God with all his faults and failings. He knew and loved the Lord and he was filled with the Spirit of God. And the, and the fact of the matter was that because he was filled with the Spirit of God, God could burden him. And he had burdens. And this is one of them. The Philippian letter is one of his great burdens. You go back, we won't do it, but you go back to Ephesians and you find the same thing. He's no sooner started than he starts to say, I'm going to pray for you all now. And down he is on his knees praying for them. Turn to the Colossian letter and you find, he says, I pray for you all. I just pray for you all. And we have what his prayer is. He's got a burden. It's not, God bless them at Colossae. Amen. 
Or, Lord, I just want to remember the people at Ephesus, Laodicea, uh, Colossae, and Thessalonica, and Corinth, and Rome. Bless them all, Lord. Not at all. He tells them exactly what the burden is, and it's a big burden. It's a burden, I may add, that requires a fight. Not a, a little chance-type prayer, but a prayer that involves him in a tremendous conflict. Now, turn on to, uh, back to Galatians 4 and verse 19. Listen, here he's writing a letter in white-hot anger, and he's rebuked these dear saints there, and he actually says some things that uh, have never been properly translated, because they really hardly can be. He got so angry. But here he says in chapter 490, My little children of whom I am again in travel until Christ be formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. What a man. I'm in travel again. No, notice, oh, what a lot hangs on a small word. Again. This wasn't the first time for them. He'd already been in great travel. He used a strongish word. Now he's in travail again till Christ be fully formed in you. He evidently was in travail before for Christ to be formed or, or brought into being in them. Now he was fully formed. Here's a man with a burden. He's a spiritual Levite. He's bearing things on his shoulder. He's got no machine. Steps one, two, three, and four and you're in. He was a man who had a, a, a burden on his shoulder. Something that was in the man and he knew that the only way through to a spiritual end for spiritual means. Spiritual Levite. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. Besides those things that are without, there is that which presseth upon me daily, anxiety for all the churches. He's naughty to have used that word. Christians shouldn't be anxious. But here's the apostle in his usual spontaneous way, letting a cat out of the bag. And he tells us that he's got a terrible anxiety neurosis, and it's not for himself. When you go through the list of the things this man has suffered, you would have well thought that he ought to have been worried he should have had an anxiety neurosis for himself, for his preservation, for his well-being, for his health, for his soundness, but not at all. This man says, the thing, he says, the way he actually puts it is this. He says, besides all these things that come out of course, there is that which is absolutely in course. And that is the anxiety for the churches. He took this as the norm. He was, he was bearing something on his shoulders. I've no doubt at all that tremendous amount depended upon Paul and a few of those others who bore these kind of things on their shoulders. No machine. No lovely little thing he was pulling along with the whole ministry on it. Slowly, gently coming behind him as he tugged it along. But it was on his shoulders, it was in the man. Then again, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. 
for I would have you know how greatly I strive for you. And for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, they being knit together in love. He's striving for these souls. Now this is interesting because he's already ministering. It's as if he was having a conference somewhere else. And in the midst of this conference, he sits down and writes a letter to these people back at Colossae and Laodicea. And he says, you know, I'm striving for you. The burden of all the churches. He was on him. Priority. Priority. He was absolutely committed to the Lord. And then one further um, verse. Colossians 4, just unless you feel that the Apostle Paul was a unique person. Colossians 4 and verse 11 and 12, a man that we hardly know about anywhere else. I'm sorry, 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, saluteth you, always striving for you in his prayers, that ye may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he hath much labor for you and for them in Laodicea, and for them in Hierapolis. What an amazing man this Epaphras was. He was a Levite. He bore on his shoulders the things of God. We don't know much about Epaphras. But what we do know is this. He bore something on his shoulders. He wasn't just a person who could give a glib message and go on his way. But it was a man who bore the thing on his shoulders and strove for them whether he was with them or not. That God might get what he wanted there. And surely you begin to see that this burden is not that I might see my influence over you grow. That I may mold you according to my idea or conception. But the whole burden is one for God. That the Lord might get something that he might have his way, that these people may be built up into him, that their oneness may be preserved, and so on and so forth. What does it uh, mean to carry holy things upon our shoulders? Simply that we carry the burden for the Lord's sake and for his people's sake. Oh, for a spirit like that, where we really are prepared to bear things on our shoulders for the Lord's sake and for the church's sake. Then I would say thirdly, it means that they are to be sensitive to the Lord, keeping the charge. That they are to be sensitive to the Lord, keeping the charge. Numbers chapter 1, verse 53. But the Levite shall encamp round about the tabernacle of the testimony, that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levite shall keep the charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, will you notice here that they were the ones who had to actually encamp right round the tabernacle that the Lord's anger should not be upon the rest. Now, just wait. That seems to give the impression that God is some kind of Victorian grandfather who gets very, very irritated if the children are too near him. But no, not at all. The point is not that. God loves his people and loves to hear them and loves them to be near him. But he wanted people who were sensitive 
to what was wrong. In other words, that he might have right round the actual testimony of the tabernacle, those who could immediately spot danger, or harm, or evil. These were the men who had taken the sword to their own kith and kin. These were the people who had saved the day for God, when even Aaron had gone astray. Therefore, they were to be right near round the Lord because their priorities were right. Now, when your priorities are right, now get this, when your priorities are right, before long, there comes a sensitivity to God and to the things of God. The way is open. People often ask me, how do you know when something's right or wrong? You just know. When your priorities are right. But your priorities must be right. You see, many of us want machines. We want sort of... Um, so, uh, now, I've got to be very careful what I say here. But we want even the Word of God to be a kind of cart detached from us that we can just batter into being. It's regulation. It's precepts. This Moses never did. Although he'd heard them straight firsthand from God, every time there was trouble, he fell flat on his face before the Lord. Now, when I was a boy and first read uh, um, uh, Exodus and Numbers uh, with all the liveliness of a new mind uh, and new material, because I'd never read it till I was 12. No, I was actually 14 when I first read the whole Bible. But you know, when I first read it, I could never understand why Moses, I used to think that if I'd been there I would have said to him, what are you doing on your face? You of all people ought to know. God's told you. What's the point of falling flat on your face when God's already told you what to do? But you see, there was spirituality. You can't just batter regulations into being, even in the Old Testament. When you fell on your face before God, God showed you how those regulations and how those precepts are to be applied. Now, sometimes we want a kind of machine. Sometimes um, it's particular sort of conceptions. Sometimes it's words. Sometimes it's methods. But we want to have things that we sort of feel, you know, there's... I told you a little while ago, there was a person I remember in Egypt who always felt that unless you had confession to start with, the thing was of no good at all. You must have confession. Everything was judged. Even if the Lord himself stood in the midst and there was tremendous blessing, it would be a rotten meeting because there was no confession. Must be something false because confession. You must have confession. Now, that's a card. That's taking holy things on a cart. It's not sensitivity to the Lord. Sensitivity to the Lord is the ability to know what the Lord is doing in this particular situation. And sometimes it may appear to be quite the wrong, wrong way round. For instance, if I'd had my way, I would have stopped some things altogether at the start. Uh, in friends that I've known. I would have said to him, no, 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 that's quite wrong, because I'm quite clear as to certain things, for instance, about the work of God or the church of God, but because something in me said, no, no, just you wait, I'm doing something here. So you have to hold back, and then years afterwards, 
absolutely fine. I remember one brother, Ron and I knew, and Pat, in Egypt, who uh, was such a dear fellow. And then when he came out, he said he'd, he'd heard the call to missionary work, actually in a meeting in which I was speaking, so I felt some responsibility for him. Then he came out, and what happened? He applied to the deadest, most liberal congregational college in the whole country. I was horrified. So I sat down to write him a long letter telling him exactly how awful it was. How could he possibly go to such a place? But then as I did it, I just felt a strange restraint in me. I don't know. Partly I thought, well, will he listen? And then I thought, well, I don't know. And finally I put the whole thing on one side and said, Lord, I leave him with you. And I felt as if the Lord was saying, yes, just you leave him to me. Believe it or believe it not, he went through his whole four or five years in a liberal college and came out as fundamental and conservative at the end, having caused havoc in the college. <coughs> then he did the second thing that shook me to my foundations. He applied to the deadest mission it's possible to conceive of and went to East Pakistan under the Presbyterian, the North. Presbyterian, not this country's Presbyterian, but the North American Presbyterian Board for Pakistan. There wasn't a single believing missionary in the whole of that East Pakistan field. And the two seniors that he came under had not spoken to each other for six years. <laughs> well, just wait. They shared the same bungalow and ate meals together twice a day. The way they spoke with each other was by writing a little note and giving it to the servants. The servants went round the table and put the note in front of the other, and he wrote a note round, the servant came back. Throughout the bazaar, it was known the Christian missionary sahibs who do not speak to each other. So extraordinary was this man that when he went out, he was called Tiger Sahib by all the locals, that when he went out on his little put, put, put machine through the thing, they, people used to put a special guard up on a, on a little hillock to watch and as soon as they saw the put, put, put coming there was a whistle and everyone went down under the maze until he'd passed. That was the way they evangelized East Pakistan. But what happened? Far from killing him, this brother asked for the dentist. He said, please send me to the mission station farthest away from the headquarters. They obliged. And when he got there, he saw a list of 22 missionaries who had died, on average, one per year from the foundation of the, of the uh, station. After the first meeting, the old pastor, a white-haired man, came up in tears. And he said, Pastor, we have prayed out every missionary that's been in this place for the last 35 years because they were all liberal. But he said, God has finally answered that. But what happened? Ron knows. We know the story. God started such an extraordinary work. People got saved on all sides. Muslims came in and got saved. Over 60 Muslims, unheard of. So that they flew in back to speak at the assembly uh, in Edinburgh. They were so excited because this was the only field where they saw an increase apart from baptisms. That is, christenings. They were babies born to so-called Christian parents.
What happened to the group? It developed into such a lively New Testament church that it was kicked out and went with Father Barthesine. You see, the whole point is this, that if I'd had my way, he wouldn't have gone in that college, and he certainly wouldn't have gone out with that mission. Now, I'm not suggesting you all go into dead colleges or go out with dead missions, but what I am saying is this, have we got a cart, or are we sensitive to the Lord? It's not that we're not to be clear as to spiritual principles, and it's not that we're not to be clear as to the way God does things, but it's a question of having got absolutely 100% clear, we're still above and beyond that sensitive to the Lord, so that when there's an exception to the rule, we know it. And it's hands off. We can leave it with God. Sensitivity. The need to be sensitive to the Lord. Oh, again and again, this uh, is such a word, especially to those of us who are older. How easy it is to be insensitive. We can all have the wisdom of hindsight. After it's all happened, we look back and say, Ah, yes. How few are sensitive to spiritual uh, movements. When I say movements, I mean in the atmosphere. Activity. Oh, I could tell you many a thing on, on this. But you see, we can be taken in by the apparent. Not only taken in by what we think should be the logical sequence, but taken in by the apparent. Things look good or things look bad. We're taken in by it. Instead of enduring a seeing him who is invisible. Remember years ago, sitting in a most beautiful summer's afternoon in Oxford, in Lady Ogle's beautiful home, out in the grounds there, overlooking Ashdown Forest, in the distance. And, oh, it was the most ideal day. There were grass snakes on the yew hedge, asleep. There were butterflies and bees, birds twittering and singing, and everything else. And suddenly she turned round to me and said, Lance, there's terrible conflict in the atmosphere today. And my mouth just <laughs> I just looked at her and I said, oh, yes. She said, well, don't you feel it? So I said, well, uh, uh, well, I'm not really sure. I said that I do. Probably I'm not on the ball. I don't know. I said, oh, she said, you mark my words. There's big movements today in the unseen. I felt it from early morning. So in the evening, she said to me, come on, we'll listen to the news. We went over to the um, radiogram. She switched it on and, and whittled with the knob. With the knob uh, twiddled with the knob till she got it right. And then, of course, what was the news? Uh, Iraq had been sudden revolution in Iraq. The royal family murdered. And all the rest of it. And I've never forgotten the way she did that. That's it, she said. Now, you won't get a burden like that unless you've got a world vision. And when you've got a world vision, and she had, and when you take the whole work of God from the ends of the earth upon your shoulders, you're up every morning. I remember her once saying to me, I don't think there's a single dawn that I've missed in the last seven years. Every morning up, curtain drawn back, and there at prayer, and not always by information, but by spiritual intuition. Now, that sensitivity 
on a very big scale, on a very high scale, to the things of God. How much more we need it locally. To know when the enemy's marshalling forces. To know when there's an ambush. We seem to think this all belongs to the Old Testament. It's not so at all. The enemy sets liars in wait. He sets am ambushes on the people of God. The whole thing is to know it. Not to walk into it with blinded eyes, singing a hymn or two. Praise God when like Jehoshaphat, we go in singing a hymn because we know they're there. And we're trusting the Lord. Woe betimes if we go in blind singing a hymn. We're ambushed. When it's all over, we say, oh, you know, funny, funny thing. I felt some time ago that something was developing. We've all got the wisdom of hindsight, but God doesn't want that. Levitical service is not the wisdom and knowledge of hindsight. It is the sensitivity before a thing happens to the danger that's coming. Now, we can go the other way. I must just hasten to say this, where we can go the other way, where we can be people who are all the time threatening those horrifying things upon the people of God. Oh, I'm sure something's happening here. No joy, no peace, no life, but all the time something's happening here, something's happening there. We need to pray here. We should have a special time of prayer for this and this kind of thing. We need to be careful of that too. But we do need sensitivity to the Lord. That's carrying holy things. The charge, it is quite interesting. Paul speaks quite a lot of the charge, and always in connection with the house of God. He speaks of Timothy. He says, Timothy, here's the charge. He speaks of the end of the charge. He charges them. Paul charged the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. Peter the Apostle spoke of the charge God has allotted to the elders, which was the house of God, the flock, and so on and so forth. The charge. You see, the whole question is sensitivity, to see the things that are happening and to be aware of them beforehand. Now, people tell me that it's a matter of temperament. This is so much rubbish. In fact, I am highly suspicious of people who are merely temperamentally sensitive in things spiritual because they nearly always go haywire. It's not a question of being temperamentally sensitive. It is a question of spiritual sensitivity. That is the development in our spirit of, 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 a, of, a, of a sensitivity to the things of God. It's as simple as that to the way of God, to the movements of God, and so on. Well, I just say it there because any danger that comes can then be dealt with. Things that are spotted in a person's life, a word in time, a stitch in time saves nothing. How true. Well, then, there's no more really to say except that one person asked me, uh, I won't say who, but someone here present this evening said to me a while back, you know, a week or so, two ago, I'm an old one. As all this talk about bearing holy things on the shoulders, and there's been talk about the showbread table as sort of giving, and uh, the lampstand as sort of light, uh, and outreach, and, and so on, but uh, what about us old ones? What do we do? Where do we come in? Well, of course, I mean, you come right in on it. 
bearing holy things on, on the shoulders, there were four general things. There was the ark, which speaks of the presence of the Lord, Christ-centered man. There was the tent, the house of God. Care for that, responsibility over that, inwardly. There was the altar, which speaks of Calvary. Christ crucified, not only for us, but as us. And the labor, which speaks of regeneration, new life, and the washing of regeneration. In other words, continual renewal. Now, these four things we all need to bear continually before the Lord. We need to take responsibility for the presence of God amongst us and for everything that was contradicted or caused the presence of the Lord to withdraw. We need all of us to take note of what's in the ark, but I won't go into that now, but we need to. We need to remember there's a mercy seat above it. How gracious God is in this matter when there's failing coming short. We all need to take responsibility for the house of God. We all need to take responsibility for the cross to make sure that the message and the foundation is always Christ crucified. And we all need to take responsibility for the labor, new birth, for everything comes out of and beyond that, new life, resurrection life, the power of his life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now we all need to take responsibility for that. Then there are other things. There is the table. This was the showbread table, and in Hebrew it simply means the table of the presence, or literally of the face. And they put the bread on the table. And if you look in Leviticus 24, you will see that the people had to give that bread. They gave the bread, and it was put on the table in two rows of six. Then the bread was given back to the Levites. Now, isn't that interesting? Because it speaks of the bread of life. And the Lord Jesus expressly, I believe, tried to teach this lesson through the feeding of the 5,000 and later of the 4,000. What was it? That he is the bread of life. That little boy had just a little bit of Christ, symbolically. And he gave what he had. And because he gave his five loaves and two fishes, a huge multitude were fed. That's the principle of the show. But are we bearing that on our shoulders? Are we giving? Have we given ourselves? Are we giving what we've got of Christ? Are we giving our money? Are we giving our time? Where do we stand in the question of giving? We bear it on our shoulders. The lampstand hardly needs here <clears throat> much to be said, I think, except that the Lord is the light of the world and we are the light of the world in him. Ye are light in the Lord. And this light is the testimony of Jesus. We hold it. Now, it's not just a question of inner sanctification, but it's a question of outreach, because what the Lord wants to do is just to <clears throat> express himself in us and through us. That's all as simple as that. So utterly simple, the lampstand. Now, outreach, there are those who can go, whether it's to the ends of the earth, 
whether it's across the channel or whether it's across the road. There are those who can go, but all of us, surely many of us, there's some form of outreach we can carry on our shoulders. And if nothing else, we can have a concern for the testimony of Jesus. You older ones, you may not be able to go very far, but surely if you can't give, you can bear up the testimony of Jesus. And that's what the golden incense altar is. It speaks of Christ as intercessor. And then it speaks of the intercession of the saints. And then it speaks of something deeper than that. It speaks of the travail of the Spirit of God in us with groanings which cannot be uttered, but which are according to the mind and will of God. And he who searches the hearts reads aright what the Spirit is travailing in us. So you older ones, if there's nothing else, surely you can bear on your shoulders the golden altar of incense. Whatever it is, every one of us ought to be a spiritual Levite for the rest. Now then may God help us to be those who, as who answer that call of the Apostle Paul, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritually intelligent service or worship. Shall we bow together? Lord, thou hast spoken to us a number of times about this matter of bearing the holy things on our shoulders. And we're quite sure, Lord, that if there's to be any advance, if there's to be any real moving forward, if thy purpose for us as a company, thy purpose for thy church in general, Thy purpose, Lord, for the unsaved around us to reach them in these dark days is to be fulfilled. Then, Lord, we know that thy need is for spiritual Levites, those who can carry the holy thing. O oh, Father, we ask thee that thou might find in all of us a willing heart, hearts that are ready, perhaps not knowing fully what it entails, to be committed to thee for thy way. O oh Lord, hear us. In all that's been said, there must be that which applies to every one of us. Preserve us, Lord, from somehow evading the issue. O oh Lord, pitchforking responsibility onto circumstances or background or others. We ask thee rather, Lord, that thou wilt, in thy grace and mercy, help us to face thy challenge, and to be honest with thee. So, Lord, we all want to tell thee we long that thou shalt have thy way in these days, and that, Lord, thou shalt be able to do something freely and gloriously in our day and generation, in the light of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. O oh, Father, hear then, as now we commit ourselves to thee in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.